Ladies and gentlemen and corner kick fam, Project Restart is upon us. The Premier League is back on your screens and our screens. Arsenal are losing big games once again. Uh, it feels like we're back into the new normal as things were. Uh, my name is Nick Avinden, and I am joined once again by the three-man booth in Caleb Rhodes and oh, Nathan Yeah, oh. Nick, it took all of eight minutes for me to wish that the Premier League had actually decided to just void the season instead uh, as Arsenal came out with the most Arsenal of performances against City and uh, Nathan, hold, on. hold on Nathan we're gonna give you we're gonna give you your time to vent because I know you sent Caleb and I a message being like I'll have a whole rant prepared for the podcast but before we know we let you unload on the uh, Arsenal performance that was uh, let's have the uh, the neutral voices take us through their opinions before we get to the uh, the the Arsenal perspective, shall we? Caleb, what was your impression of uh, Arsenal versus Man City and just kind of the vast dichotomy that we saw from both sides on the pitch? Yeah, so I said last week that Arsenal were toast for the rest of the season, and I thought that was hopefully going to be an overstatement, but it was actually, in fact, an understatement. And... I know a lot of things went wrong in this game. Like Arsenal lost two center backs, one to an injury, like instantaneously once the game began. And then, and I'm sure Nathan will touch on this, another player who, he who shall not be named for the rest of this podcast, perhaps, came in and was just awful for the all of 25 minutes that he was on the pitch before he got sent off. But I think that Arteta, just like, it, it seems like he honestly wanted to lose the game, right? Because he left... Lacazette, Danny Ceballos, Nicolas Pepe, and Gabriel Martinelli all on the bench. Like, honestly, it makes zero sense to me why he started Sokka, Willock, and Nketiah, even though Nketiah's been good. But, like, he left so much quality on the bench, and it just, like, it begs the question, why? He even left Oetzel out of the squad. And so I'm not sure it seemed like Arsenal ever really deserved anything from this game. And it was literally one of the worst games of soccer I've seen from a top five side ever. Like, it was yeah, that bad. I mean, I completely agree, Caleb. I think we really saw the uh, just, like, vast dichotomy and preparedness from both sides. Manchester City, they started out a little rusty, but once they got going, they really got going in their style. And it was like they hadn't even taken a break. De Bruyne, um, David Silva, Sergio Aguero was linking things in the middle of the pitch. And even the likes of Phil Foden coming on and reintegrating into their uh, passing flow really, really seamlessly. And it was just the complete opposite from Arsenal. You felt that they had a good start with Nketiah up top, but he wasn't really finishing off the chances that he maybe should have finished off or gotten them on target. And then you look to their bench and you see that Ozil's not on the bench and Ceballos having to come in. And you just have to wonder about whether Arteta questions the commitment from some of these players, particularly the ones who uh, have already expressed that they may, they might not be at Arsenal for the foreseeable future. Like Danny Ceballos has said that he sees himself long-term in Spain, either at Real Madrid or he's been linked to the likes of Valencia in the past couple of months. And obviously his loan expires at the end of the season. We have yet to know if uh, he'll be extended till uh, the very end of the Premier League campaign or will he leave at the end of June? Who really knows there? But yeah, I think it was just such a... It was just such a confusing game from Arsenal's perspective. The fact that they had all this time to prepare for this game. And it looked like they really had no impetus to get back into it once they went down. 
one nil, and then things just got a lot worse in there. Obviously, Honestly, you look at their transfer policy with the likes of David Luiz coming in off of the bench. Like that's the best they could do, and he really just he kind of put his foot in it and made things a whole lot worse. But I think all around, you have to look at the fact that players like Ozil weren't on the pitch, weren't even in the squad, and there are still guys like Cedric Suarez who have I don't even know have yet to make an appearance for the club. And their record signing was sitting on the bench and you didn't even get to make an appearance. So I think there's a lot of systemic problems going on at Arsenal. And I think they all kind of came to bore in this 90 minutes against the, uh, against the reigning champions. Yeah, and also, I don't even care about like Danny Chabias's commitment, right? Like they're not going to have commitment from players that are full, like permanent players like Abema Yang, like Lacazette, like even their club record signing Nicolas Pepe, if they're not even going to squeak into Europa League place. Like, Frankly, it's unacceptable, the lineup they put out, given the quality in their squad. It's unacceptable that Pepe or Martinelli didn't even make it on the field, right? Like, it honestly just seemed like a joke that City could start Gabriel Jesus even, and then just as kind of like for fun, they could bring on Sergio Aguero at the end. Like, it just demonstrated the total like gulf between these clubs that's developed over the last five years. Absolutely. While we like, I like Nketiah as a player, and I think he had some bright spots, especially early in the game. This dude uh, did not have a good campaign with Leeds in the championship not five months ago, and he's starting over Alexander Lacazette. And yeah, Caleb, I, I absolutely agree with you. I really think this lineup wasn't it. I can understand maybe putting out some young players to who are a bit more accustomed and can get up to speed with the fitness levels of restarting kind of abruptly a campaign that was put on pause just to maybe it's a bit more lively than putting out some of the older players who their bodies might take a little bit to get back up to speed. But I don't know, even then I just think there's a little bit of Arteta doesn't quite know what he has with the squad and doesn't quite know who he can trust or who he can depend on from this Arsenal team. Yeah. And I think like one of the most damning stats that maybe puts Arteta off the hook a little bit is that, you know, Arsenal haven't won against another top six side in the Premier League in like five years against City in their last like six games or something. They've conceded something like 20 and only scored two. Like they just literally just like aren't up to scratch compared to these other teams. And I and the team continues not to be. I don't know. Perhaps it's time to let our resident Arsenal fan give his words. And I, I, I'm, I'm expecting a lot, Nathan. I'm expecting to be inspired and inflamed i want you to be like those guys on arsenal tv who hounds that dude after games who we can't see anymore because obviously covid but i i want you to make up that experience for us right here right now nathan i want to start i want to start off by saying that everything that could have possibly gone wrong for arsenal's first game back did like you said nick I think that I'm not prepared to place much of the blame for how uh, for how Wednesday's game went on Mikel Arteta because I think that there's not much that he could have done given the fact that we're missing a complete squad. I think our squad construction is poor. I think it has been poor going back to like, you know, 2014 when we lost Santi Cazorla for, for good. Uh, and our transfers over the past three years have just been massive failures. Combine that with the fact that we've let world-class players or particularly one world-class player in Serge Gnabry go on a free 
and it's just shambolic. We're leaving 75 million pound players on the bench in exchange for an 18 year old playing on his off wing. It just doesn't make sense to me at all. And Aubameyang, one of the best players in his position in the world, being forced out of position by a 20 year old. It doesn't really make sense. And I know I understand that, you know, Arteta might be trying something different tactically, but it clearly didn't work. And so tomorrow, Arsenal have a game against a bottom half side in Brighton and Hove Albion. And I want to see attacking. I want to see players being played in their position. And this is something that's going all the way back to Arsene Wenger, too. Wenger used to get a lot of shtick for not playing Urzel in his proper position and playing him out wide. And then Urzel was repeatedly dropped by Emery and now has been dropped again by Arteta. So you have to think that there is some uh, issues here with the players in the squad. That being said, man, if there's one player who I never want to see again in an Arsenal uniform or even on a soccer field ever again, it is the curly-haired freak himself, David Luiz. There are just some absolutely extraordinary numbers. He's given up five times more penalties with Arsenal um, than he did in 200 games with Chelsea. It's just obscene. He became the first Premier League player to concede a penalty get sent off and commit an error leading to goal in one game. That's just so terrible. And the fact that he did it all in 24 minutes is even worse. And let's not even get started on Pablo Marie. Like, I feel so bad for this dude. He played 236 consecutive games without injury over his career with City and Flamengo. And then he comes to Arsenal and plays 210 minutes of soccer before getting injuries and then having to have surgery and being out for four to eight weeks. Like, that's just nuts. Like, honestly, we're just a cursed team at this point. If we finish higher than eighth, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Like, just burn it all down and start over. That was brilliant. I loved every second of that. Burn it all down and start over. That was the most entertainment I've had. Potentially all of uh, quarantine, I must say. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. No. I think Nathan, you hit on something. <laughs> I'm to let you work this out real quick. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, Nathan, I think you hit on something that I also kind of wanted to touch on, and that was the Aubameyang playing out of position on the left, which I really think hindered Arsenal's performance right from the word go. Uh, it was just so confusing to me what was going on. And Arsenal didn't even register a single shot on target throughout the 90 minutes. So yeah, I think you were just absolutely spot on in that epic uh, Limbaugh style rant on Arsenal football club. I think it was, is angry and vitriolic and I think well-deserved and very well put as well. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you just looked at the stats from this game and, and you didn't know who city were playing and you saw that city had 18 shots, 12 on target, had almost 70% possession, and the team they were facing had three shots total and none on target, you would think that they were playing like an early round FA Cup game against like a championship or league one side, right? And I also think that as kind of, I think it was Nick who mentioned it, it wasn't like City were super duper tight early on. Like Kevin De Bruyne especially had a number of uncharacteristic loose passes in dangerous positions. And you have to wonder if you have some of the attacking talent that are actual like full-time professional players and not 18-year-olds looking to potentially go on loan to a championship team, you have to wonder if Arsenal could have been able to make City pay early. But we'll never get to figure that out. 
And as much as I sort of agree with Nathan that like this Arsenal squad is pretty bad all around and doesn't really have a lot of direction, I do think that Arteta still made some of the worst choices he could have given the situation. I agree with that. I mean, yeah, I agree. It's been annoying to see Pepe not get the minutes that uh, I think he's deserved this year, both under Emery and now under Arteta. He's kind of an interesting case because it's been pretty clear that he has a a lot of quality and he definitely has potential. Uh, You know, he's come on and absolutely taken over games. Like he won us points against Aston Villa earlier this year. He scored two free kick goals uh, against uh, Vittorio Gumaric in the Europa League. But he's kind of a standalone player on the wing. Like he, he demands the ball a lot and he's not the most technical of players. He's a little bit unpolished. And I think that Arteta has tried to implement his sort of Pep Guardiola light tactics very early on here with City. Uh, pardon me, with Arsenal. But he sees that uh, he sees that Pepe might not fit like the he might not be like the archetype for uh, for his system. That being said, I think given how weak the squad is, Arsenal have nothing to lose, and Arteta has nothing to lose by playing him, um, because it, you know, what he could be capable of might end up saving them, given how poor we were in front of goal the other day. And, you know, if he's not performing well, just take him off at halftime. You know, you have five subs now. You can change up the game and, you know, play Aubameyang up top. I want to see a front three of Saka on the left, Aubameyang up top, and Pepe on the right. Or Martinelli on the left instead of Saka. I did think that uh, that Tierney played pretty well as a left back. Like I think Arsenal's only two players who could have been said to perform well were Kieran Tierney and Bernd Leno. Uh, given that Tierney hadn't really played a game in you know three and a half months, um, and he's had injury problems all year, he definitely looks like he could end up becoming the player that we thought we would have when we signed him. Um, but you know, there's only so much that one left back can do when you're looking at a back four that's been so disappointing. And really, Bellerin wasn't great, but wasn't terrible either. Um, the revolving door of center backs, though, is really concerning because you look at who Arsenal have available on uh, on Saturday for this Brighton game, and you have two youth players in uh, in Zach Medley and uh, one other player who, who, I, who I can't remember. And uh, you have Socrates and Rob Holding, who moves like a brink truck with its tires slashed. So I'm, you know, there's only so much you can do right now. If you're Arteta, do you try to go to three at the back so you can, you know, shield that back four a bit with two wing backs? I don't know. I mean, at this point, it just makes me wish that instead of signing Pepe, we had spent the same amount of money on Upamakano. And yeah, we do have Saliba who's with Arsenal in training right now, but obviously he's ineligible until the start of next year as well. So Right now, Arsenal are pretty much in survival mode, and uh, hopefully we can get it right. And also, we haven't even touched upon this, but like, I think Arsenal's best defensive midfielder in Lucas Torreira is also injured and is going to be out for another three weeks. So the combination of, for whatever reason, Arsenal's physios and trainers aren't able to get this team fit and transfer policy has led to this whole like situation. Ooh, it's getting hot in here, ladies and gentlemen. Hear me out screw style okay screw trying to play like pep guardiola like literally just put your best people on the field and say you know what this is not ideal but i also think that you're a good player and we need to win points 
right? Like, screw style. Like, absolutely. No, yeah. I think the end at the end of the day, Arsenal need points. A lot of their financial windfall is going to come from whether or not they can get into those European places, especially this season with uh, the COVID situation being what it is and the finances and soccer right now. Arsenal need points, and they need to be in Europe. Uh, that's kind of like the bottom line, right? So screw style, as Caleb was saying. Screw like trying to fit Willock and Saka and Nketia into some sort of like a makeshift uh, Pep Guardiola, Tiki Taka-esque system. If you're Mikel Arteta, you got Lacazette, Aubameyang, Pepe. Play all three of them going forward. Like that should be the way. Like that should be, that. that's like, that's like it. Like cut, dry, done. Like play those three going forward. Like that's the unit. That's like they're your best players. Put your best players in the field. Put Odell on the field. Like that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Arsenal. In Arsenal's next four games, they really need to win all four of them. They've got Brighton, Southampton, Sheffield in the FA Cup, and then Norwich before a trickier run of four games against Wolves, Leicester, Spurs, and Liverpool. I mean, Arsenal really need to take nine points in the league and a victory over Sheffield for this season to be salvageable. Um, you know, it's it's yet to be seen how teams like Sheffield and Wolves will fare under Project Restart. They, of course, play this weekend, and Arsenal had a game in hand um, before uh, their game tomorrow against Brighton. But you know, Arsenal need to start picking up points. They're in danger of being overtaken by Burnley, Palace, Everton, and Southampton. Uh, in the next matches if they continue to drop points and you know time is running out and that being said I, I do think that you know an, a run in the FA Cup could salvage this season as well you know all it takes is Arsenal winning the FA Cup to get into Europe um, and we know that Arsenal have this intense ability to uh, perform in that competition but I guess we'll see tomorrow uh, how Arsenal do against a weaker side and uh, if I can stop being so depressed about uh, my soccer team, once again. Man, what a disastrous start for Arsenal in the Premier League. Another disaster that occurred in the Premier League, though, was uh, right in the very first half of Project Restart, and that is the situation involving Sheffield United and Aston Villa. Uh, Caleb Rhodes, what happened here with the Hawkeye technology, goal line technology, and VAR? Yeah, so Hawkeye Technology, which is the company that makes the goal line technology, it just didn't go off when it was clearly a goal. Um, and afterwards, they sent out a kind of reconciliatory tweet saying a this was a... United, we should say. Sorry, what? It's a goal for... Uh, it was supposed to be... It was Sheffield United had put the ball in the back. Oh, end. yes. Yeah. It would have been a goal for Sheffield. And so after the game, Hawkeye Technologies essentially said, like, this was a freak situation. The first time we've ever seen such a situation in, like, 9,000 games where, like, all of the cameras were blocked. And so it didn't go off. Um, and I think, I mean, it really sucks because Aston Villa now got a free point in the relegation battle. And Sheffield United essentially didn't get two more points that they deserved as they're still amazingly trying to go for Europe. And I don't know, it seems like a situation to me where you should still be able to have VAR like look over a situation like that. Even if the like watch that the refs have that says whether goal line technology ruled it a goal goes off or not. I don't know. It just seems like an utter failure. 
Um, and but maybe it's also a situation that our technology didn't imagine. Um, but very odd situation, and I think symbolic of what has been a pretty rocky project restart so far. Yeah, man, dude, uh, this was just such a disaster. As you were saying, Caleb, Aston Villa, uh, can you imagine if they stay up by one point now? Can you imagine if Sheffield United miss out on a European place by one point now? And I think this is also very uh, indicative of where the FA stands in its relationship with VAR, the fact that they're not totally comfortable with using it to make big decisions and impactful decisions in-game. The trust between VAR and the Premier League isn't quite there yet, and that includes the relationship between VAR and fans of the Premier League. And this is certainly not going to do well to mend that relationship or improve that relationship. Nathan, what was your take on this uh, really disastrous moment for Project Restart right off the jump? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to fault anything but the system here because clearly there has to be a failsafe in that you know, if everyone can see that it's clearly gone over the line and tech and you know the Hawkeye technology has failed, VAR has to be able to step in and make a common sense decision, given that you can see with the naked eye from NBC Sports's replays that it crossed the line. So my guess is that you know we'll see a an amendment to how VAR can be used, either you know in a week or two or uh, at the start of next season. Um, given all of the VAR controversy this year, you got a feel for Sheffield though. Um, and then Oren Nyland absolutely got away with one. Right. I mean, as you said, I think the point needs to be hammered home here is this was not a controversial call. This wasn't a close call. This was entirely just a systems failure. And you're right, Nathan, that it's kind of unacceptable that they don't have a like fail safe option. And the fail safe here being literally like the human eye. Right, like (laughs) we're not asking for a lot, uh, but definitely not so great. But maybe sort of moving on from that controversy, uh, we can talk a little bit about today's big game, Tottenham, Manchester United. Nick, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, My thoughts on this were that Mourinho has had a lot of time in the break to refine the Spurs team to get his style kind of imprinted on the squad that he has. But... He doesn't quite have the players to do it, as we saw. For, so for the first 75 or so minutes of this game, it was a classic Mourinho performance. He let the Flair players perform up top. Uh, the likes of Bergvine and Son and Lamella uh, were sort of taking things by the scruff of the neck and pushing Spurs forward, while everyone else was kind of sitting back, allowing pressure to come on to... Uh, their very, very compact back line. And Spurs did go and get the goal. It was a brilliant goal from uh, Steven Bergwijn, absolutely making uh, Harry Maguire look like he was not worth the title of most expensive defender of all time. But I think it's just a case of Mourinho doesn't quite have the squad yet to uh, achieve what he wants um, from games like this and to uh, kind of implement, implement his classic sort of Mourinho compact system in a way that we're so used to. Uh, I think it was definitely encouraging from a Spurs perspective, especially the first 75 minutes and the fact that they were playing so uh, effectively well at the back. Players like uh, Davies and Aurier looked like they had new life given to them. Uh, Aurier especially, I thought, had a particularly good game uh, running up and down the flank on the right-hand side, and he looked particularly good uh, defending the likes of Marcus Rashford. Um, And I think Mourinho has certainly done really good work with the likes of Harry Winks. The fact that he kind of essentially man-marked Bruno Fernandes out of the game 
for a good, good, solid two-thirds of it. Um, I think the other thing that is important to note is that uh, Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba, I think, is going to be worth the hype of watching. Uh, these two had instant chemistry on the pitch, uh, highlighted by the fact that Pogba drew the penalty from Eric Dyer and Bruno Fernandes finished it as sort of a taster of their uh, what could be a really exciting duo for Manchester United that keeps them in the Champions League conversations. Uh, I know one thing that you had talked about last week was uh, Manchester United's three at the back formation, which they abandoned. Were you surprised by that? Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that was kind of your big point for arguing why Solskjaer has had a good effect at Manchester United. Um, I was a little surprised that they abandoned it so <laughs> so dramatically, but I mean, it worked, I guess, is the thing. And if you have players like Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba, you can kind of rely on them a little bit more than relying on your style. Uh, you can, um, maybe that's something that Arteta should take note of. The fact that like, if you have quality players, you maybe don't need to stick to as strict or as rigid of a game plan in order to get a result. Uh, Pogba just, he looked amazing coming off the bench. I know it was only like a brief 30 minute cameo that we saw from him, but he was able to pick balls up, ping them 50 yards first time off of a volley. Uh, he showcased his dribbling. He showcased his passing. He showcased his shooting and he showcased his link play, uh, with the likes of Rashford, Martial and Fernandez. And, uh, I think the penalty was sort of a, uh, icing on the cake for a really, really successful Paul Pogba return. Uh, obviously, I think United probably wanted to push forward and get all three points, but it'll be uh, interesting to see how Ole uses both of these mercurial midfielders going forward. Yeah, and I mean, going back to Spurs for a second, I thought one player who really didn't live up to expectations today was Harry Kane. And admittedly, it was a hard job for him because Spurs were playing a 4-2-3-1, but it was really more of a 4-4-2, uh, given how often they were just counterattacking, especially in the first half. And that's not really what Harry Kane is built for. And given the fact that it was Lamella, uh, who was the next furthest forward player, I don't think he was given too much support. But that attacking duo wasn't great. And I thought that they were salvaged a bit by that awesome run from Bergwijn. And then, uh, you know, we can also talk a bit about how, you know, David De Gea really didn't do well on that goal it was a great run, but the finish was right at him. And as we've seen a couple of times this year, De Gea making, you know, uncharacteristic blunders uh, that have ended up costing his team points. Do you think that this is an area of concern for United going forward? Eh, I mean, De Gea's been sort of relatively error prone, but I still think that he is like a world-class goalkeeper most of the time. Um, and, you know, even if they decide to get rid of De Gea or bench him or whatever, you know, next season they could always play Dean Henderson, who you know everyone's in love with these days. Um, so I don't know. I think, obviously, it's a bad error, and he's had a few bad errors this year. Um, but I think, on average, you can kind of get over them. I, I think, Nick, your point about Mourinho not trusting his squad is perhaps best exemplified by the fact that, given that he can now make five substitutions, he only made two. Um, <laughs> including leaving club record signing Tangi and Dombele on the bench. Um, I think partly the problem with this team is that Mourinho is going to want to play a kind of counterattacking defensive style, and just Harry Kane is not fast enough to lead the line for that. Right? When Pochettino is playing this kind of exciting, 
you know, attacking brand of football, it worked out. But I just don't think Harry Kane is the right striker, kind of as Nathan said, for what Mourinho wants to do. And I think pretty much as we've said every summer since Bale left, honestly, it's incredibly unclear what to do with the Spurs squad, right? Like you feel like they kind of have solid players at every position. And then you're like, well, who do I buy, right? How do I replace them? And so I I think there should be a lot of question marks about, you know, what Harry Kane's future is at the club and then sort of how they're going to fill out this attack going forward. Yeah, I think they'll get Deli Ali back from suspension following this game, but he's also not the kind of player that Mourinho likes to put out there, um, exemplified by the fact that he uh, <laughs> sold the likes of Juan Mata previously at clubs like Chelsea. Um, so, it'll yeah, it, it'll be seen. Harry Kane dropped back a lot in this game. He was picking up the ball in center, center midfield. He was pinging, like, 30-yard passes out wide to Son, trying to free him up on the left-hand side. I just don't think that's the role he's best suited for. He's not um, the, the first guy I'd want in that sort of false nine, Roberto Firmino-type role. Um, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Caleb, and that he's he's not the ideal Mourinho striker, as we've seen before, uh, with the likes of Drogba, Costa, uh, even Diego Melito almost a decade ago, who were able to kind of drop in between the lines, pick up the ball, uh, bring it forward, bring it forward uh, lay off a pass to a winger or a midfielder. Uh, Harry Kane is very much a uh, a poacher type player, uh, but gents, I think a uh, a team that definitely wanted Arsenal to get the result that the Etihad uh, was Liverpool Football Club, who could have secured their Premier League title uh, with a win at Goodison Park if Arsenal had picked up an unlikely win, uh, albeit against Manchester City. But they're not going to get the chance to do that. Um, what do you guys expect from uh, Liverpool's return? to the Premier League against Carlo Ancelotti and his, uh, you know, steadily improving Everton side, but I think there's still a lot yet to be seen uh, with the Italian just taking over the Toffees. I mean, I think Liverpool are going to walk all over Everton. Uh, even if Salah misses out, which is, uh, it's rumored that he's not completely fit yet, uh, I think Liverpool will win this one like 3-0 or, or 4-1. Um, I think Liverpool are going to come out incredibly motivated. Uh, they don't want to slip up at this point in time. And obviously winning against your rivals on the first day back for them uh, would mean a lot. And I think that Klopp is an incredible motivator uh, and he's a really great speaker. And I can only imagine the uh, the kind of pep talk he'd be giving to his players before going into this fixture on Sunday. And I think that Liverpool will walk out three points closer to the title. Yeah. I actually see, I think it's either going to be like a crazy blowout, like 5-0, or it's going to be a nil-nil draw where Liverpool are kind of frustrated. But the beauty of Liverpool's position is their results actually don't matter that much. Um, so, and I think that's why I could go either way. Like either they're super jazzed to like take, you know, the penultimate step to the championship, or they are like a little slow to the uptake and are kind of like, you know what, this is actually okay because we have like a 99.99 chance percent chance of winning the league. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to watch it. I'm excited anyway. Like a Derby always has, you know, good potential. But I don't think that we should be worried um, about literally any result that Liverpool has in this. Yeah, game. I think an important thing to remember is that a uh, kind of Liverpool reserve side beat the Everton first team uh, in January in the third round of the FA Cup. 
uh, Curtis Jones scored an absolute uh, wonder goal in that game. But uh, if Liverpool's B team can get the job done against Everton's first team, I certainly think a Liverpool with time to uh, rest and recuperate and re-motivate themselves for this title push is going to get the job done uh, against an Everton side who are still lacking a bit of an identity. Uh, I have a question for you guys both. Chelsea this week, or really yesterday, announced that they finalized the transfer of Timo Werner, meaning that Werner and Ziyech are both confirmed for next season. Kai Havertz has emerged as uh, a frontrunner for Chelsea as well, with Havertz having liked tweets this week that uh, are asking him to sign for Chelsea, and Chelsea have been reportedly very keen on pursuing a deal. If Chelsea are able to sign Havertz, does this make Chelsea into genuine title contenders for next season? Yes. Uh, certainly put them in the conversation. I think they, uh, like you were saying last week, Nathan, that transfer ban came at the absolute perfect time for Frank Lampard and Chelsea. I think giving him a year with this squad, uh, able to kind of imp- uh, put his philosophy into place at Chelsea without the fear of integrating new bodies into the team uh, is going to do wonders for players like Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech, and potentially uh, the likes of Ben Chilwell and Kai Havertz coming into a team that already kind of knows their identity. Uh, I think that's going to help them propel them certainly towards uh, the top three places just based off quality on the squad alone. And I think uh, strikers have a boom or bust um, success rate at Chelsea. And I certainly think Timo Werner is going to be a boom for Chelsea. This guy is an insane scorer of goals. He's a natural finisher. Uh, he's one of the most talented strikers in the world on form right now. And I'm extreme. I'm just so like, I'm so jealous that he's going to be lining up for Chelsea and not Liverpool uh, next season. Oh yeah, I think Chelsea are going to be a force next year. Like I, I think they're going to be absolutely incredible i think they're incredible even if they don't get Havertz. but if they get Havertz, i think that they could win the league um assuming that the team gels and i think nick you mentioned how you know chelsea have a kind of checkered history of strikers signings but i think that essentially where in a lot of the mistakes that chelsea made in the past with strikers you know buying fernando torres after he had an injury um buying diego costa who has kind of temper issues and hadn't been a super consistent score up to that point buying Alvaro Morata when he had never really been the main man at any club um I think that you know Timo Werner is only 24 he is only getting better he has no injury problems he's been the main man I mean like I think he checks pretty much every box and I think what he gives Chelsea is just so much flexibility because you can put him out on the wing even you can play him in a two striker formation with Tammy Abraham and certainly he's used to playing in a two striker formation from Leipzig it's an insane transfer and I think with Ziyech feeding him balls as well like if Nkunku's a good assister at Leipzig I think Ziyech's gonna be an even better one for him at Chelsea so I think just, just like a, a stupidly good signing and for 50 million too like what a steal like, it's just, like, insane value. Like, it's perhaps one of the best transfers in world football, I think, um, in the past decade, I'll say. I mean, we he has to perform now, but I think, like, on its face, it seems like that good a transfer. Yeah, and I mean, 
keeping in mind that Chelsea are also going to be playing in the Champions League, and they have this absurd squad depth now that only really Liverpool and Man City have, I think, in the Premier League. Because they've had this last year to develop their youth, they're going to be able to rotate. And like, frankly, I trust Tammy Abraham to lead the line in, you know, two or three Champions League games. Uh, Maybe not in a game against Barcelona, per se, where I'd rather have Werner. But, you know, if you need to rotate, Chelsea have these incredibly capable, you know, 19 to 22 year olds. Want to play Pulisic? Great. You can play Pulisic and drop ZX and give him rest. Same with Mason Mount or Reese James. And, you know, yes, they might want another left back to upgrade over either Emerson or Marcus Alonso. But Chelsea now are looking poised to become the third team to reach what I would call a a complete squad uh, in the Premier League. I think from a Liverpool perspective, we really needed that traditional number nine, that traditional striker. I think this is a massive... I know as Liverpool fans, we can put an immense amount of trust in uh, the motivations behind whatever Jurgen Klopp does. I honestly think this is a big mistake, not uh, forking over a little extra money to uh, get Timo Werner over the line. Uh, all indications pointed to him wanting to work with Jurgen Klopp, uh, wanting to work with Liverpool. Obviously, he wouldn't be the main man up front, but I think he could easily play himself into that starting position over Roberto Firmino. Um, man, I just, it's just such, its it was so heartbreaking to see him unveiled uh, in Chelsea blue. And I think everything that you two are saying is, is correct. Chelsea are very close to having as deep of a squad as the likes of Manchester City and Liverpool. Uh, if you think about it, even just adjust their depth in midfield, uh, Kovacic, Conte, who they might offload one of these players to uh, recoup some funds. But even then, uh, Jorginho, Mason Mount, um, Zuma, Rudiger, Tamori in defense, Christensen, they have uh, depth at every key position except for left back, and it just looks like they're going to shore that up even. So, I don't know. I'm really worried about uh, Liverpool's position at the top of the table uh, with the moves that Chelsea have been making this offseason. Yeah, I mean, like the way Chelsea are going, they're just going to be, you know, the Bundesliga all-star XI, uh, which which brings me to my point that the Bundesliga in the past week has officially, in my mind, secured its status as a like league un mimic, in that it is going to be so shockingly boring next season. In fact, I feel comfortable saying at this point that I would rather watch the Belarusian league next year than the Bundesliga because Bayern are just going to continue to steamroll indefinitely, right? Because now Leipzig are losing their best player. Leverkusen are probably going to lose their best player if Havertz goes to Chelsea or if he just goes to Bayern, right? Dortmund are going to lose Hakimi back on loan. Frankly, Bayern could also just sign Holland. Frankly, Sancho could go to Manchester United. Like this league is essentially just falling apart besides Bayern. And I think it's such a shame because I think that last year Classicer a few weeks ago was perhaps the last chance we will ever get to see a team other than Bayern win the Bundesliga. Rant over. Yeah. Well, you could even, you could even, oh man. I, I mean, I agree with you, Caleb. I, you could even say that uh, Hakimi could be on his way to Bayern, uh, given the way that certain things have played out this week. Um, Bayern just have such a financial grip over the rest of the teams in the Bundesliga. They sign the best players in the division, even away from their main competitors in Dortmund, year in, year out. And I think it's a real shame that they're 
already have sewn up a Bundesliga title in this period of intense visibility uh, for the Bundesliga. The fact that they were the first league to uh, come back from the COVID break and they weren't really able to, um, maybe for the first three weeks, they were able to capitalize on that visibility. But now I think interest has certainly waned week by week by week just because of Bayern's dominance. And this is not to say that Bayern don't uh, deserve to be Bundesliga champions. I think Hansi Flick has it's just been absolutely like just exceptional since he's uh, taken over the club and the way he's integrated players, both young and old, uh, the likes of Alfonso Davies at left back and reintegrating Thomas Muller uh, in the middle of the field. Uh, d- definitely deserve to be Bundesliga champions, but I think you're right. I think the interest, it's, re- it's really, really, I mean, it's dangerous right now going forward for the Bundesliga and the fact that they're they're in this the grips of a Bayern monopoly. Especially when you consider the fact that Bayern have so much cash on hand and the fact that they keep signing these incredibly talented players on freeze. Pep Guardiola came out today and said that Sané um, does not have a future with Manchester City and that he the player wants the move to Bayern. Can you imagine if Leroy Sané joins this Bayern team and that gives them a winger corp of, uh, you know, Coman, Muller, if you count him as a winger, Serge Gnabry, uh, Perisic, and Leroy Sané, and Alfonso Davies if they want to play him further up the pitch. Like, that's just nuts. Um, and, you know, just like Juventus have the stranglehold on Italy, Bayern are just one of those clubs that are, have turned themselves into serial winners. And it'll be, it, it remains to be seen if a team can dethrone them for anything more than just one year like a Dortmund did back in 2013. 2012. Or 2012. I think it's going to be... Um... It's going to need to be something like a Monaco situation in Liga, where it's just everything conflates at the right time. You know, Bayern have an off-season like the beginning of this one, where they don't get certain things right in the first 10 or so games, and they allow just an exceptional unit in, I don't know, maybe it's Mönchengladbach, maybe it's Leverkusen, but even then, they're losing players like uh, like Kai Havertz and Marcus Thuram is being scouted by clubs abroad, so... I don't know. It's going to need like an absolutely unique situation, like we saw with Monaco and Mbappe, Falcao, Bernardo Silva, Mendy, uh, Bakayoko. It's just going to need to be something that's that comes together all at the right moment while Bayern are have their foot off the gas. I mean, to to bring us back to one of our earliest corner kick discussions, I think a large reason why there hasn't emerged a team like Monaco in the Bundesliga is because of the fifty plus one rule. It makes it incredibly hard for teams to raise that kind of capital, which is why when RB Leipzig did it, um, it was so controversial and, and they were so disliked. The Bundesliga has this you know, deeply entrenched idea of public ownership, which, of course, contrasts with, with the way that uh, the global game of soccer is moving, especially given the heavy investments from you know, the Gulf states in uh in teams like Paris Saint-Germain and Man- and Manchester City and the like. So you have to think that unfortunately German tradition, German soccer tradition is slightly holding the league back. And you know, it's holding the league back while at the same time maintaining a lot of integrity, right? Like I think that the 50 plus 1 rule is a great idea in theory. At the on the other hand, it does make it incredibly difficult for other teams to compete when they're going up against a team with the finances of Bayern. 
Yeah. Yeah, I hate to say this, but I think one of the perhaps the only team that can match them year in, year out is gonna be RB Leipzig with their consistency and the way that they do their business and the fact that they're managed by kind of an outside entity uh that is purely corporational. Um but even then, like they're losing players like Timo Werner. So it'll it'll be seen what, what they can do. Uh if Dortmund lose Jaden Sancho. They're going to have to start from square one again with the likes of Jude Bellingham potentially coming in from Birmingham, uh, another young English uh, prospect who they can work up to be potentially another Jaden Sancho. But then Jude Bellingham might just go off to Chelsea or Liverpool or something like that. So it just seems like we're, history is repeating itself constantly year in, year out in the Bundesliga Caleb Rhodes. Yeah, I mean, like the problem is the best German players either as soon as they turn like 22 are like, okay, get me to Bayern or they leave. Right. And so that totally deflates the rest of the league. And unlike say like a Leicester story in England, where you have like a bunch of strong teams that are just knocking each other out, like which allows a team like Leicester to, you know, win the league with the lowest goal difference on average of most teams that win the league to win with like the fewest points that are fewer points than an average champion does like that just can't really happen in the Bundesliga. And a lot of ways, Nathan, I think, and you're alluding to this, like Leipzig, we're going to be that team that perhaps overperformed just enough, but now they've just had their head chopped off because Werner went to Chelsea. And so like, I just don't see a way out. And I think the problem is, especially with like COVID is these disparities are only going to grow greater. And so, I don't know. I mean, like, honestly, the Bundesliga never held that much interest for me other than their classier games, just because I felt like the league always trended this way. But I think it's kind of a shame that the German league is going to go the way of Ligue 1. And I don't think that's true of Serie A, where I think there are several quality teams. But I think just the Bundesliga is kind of, like, dead. Speaking of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah... yeah. It's possible, you know, I feel like every other year, these leagues that have been, you know, recently dominated by one team have legitimate challengers. I'm thinking back to, you know, Napoli in 2016-17 with their uh, push of Juve and even a team like Lazio this year pushing Juve. But, you know, you look at France and you realize that the last team that, you know, dethroned PSG was Monaco and they proceeded to then sell all of their prominent parts. And then the team before that was, I believe, Montpellier in 2011, 2012. So the fact is that I am far more likely to be interested in a league that has multiple different competitors every year. And Caleb, I think back to when we were at the Yale Soccer Conference and we were listening to how the Bundesliga is trying to capture a market share when it comes to... uh, viewers in the States. And I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to sell American fans on a non-Premier League entity, especially when there's really only one or two teams that can capture uh, uh, even the most casual fans' attention. All right, and this is kind of what Nick was alluding to. Like The Bundesliga literally had a three-week span to get fans and to become more of a brand in the U.S., and I think that culminated and honestly hinged on whether Dortmund could beat Bayern in Der Klassiker, 
right? Like, you know, all the Bundesliga executives were like, please let this happen. Because if that doesn't happen, then there's no competitivity anymore, right? And it didn't. And so they totally missed their one opportunity, right? Like soccer history will mark that game as the moment when the Bundesliga failed to establish broader relevancy. Yeah, I think they missed a big opportunity. I think you're absolutely right, Caleb. I think we were all pulling for Dortmund uh, to win to win a championship just so we could say, hey, this is the Bundesliga. It's exciting. Uh, it's something with like a bit of a different flavor than the Premier League that uh, I think most people are used to watching. But that wasn't the case. And uh, unfortunately, it was somewhat predictable that uh, Bayern were going to swap this eighth consecutive title. Maybe we can transition over to Spain for the final portion of today's podcast where Barcelona just wrapping up a nil-nil draw with Sevilla in their first real test since coming back from the break. A slightly conservative game from a Barcelona standpoint. Caleb, what do you make of uh, how La Liga has returned so far? You know, I've actually been pretty pleased uh, with how La Liga has returned so far. I think we've seen several good games. Um, I mean, we saw Atleti finally find their feet, which is always good. I mean, I have nothing against Jao Felix. I, I think the team that has come back strongest by far has been Madrid. Um, and by strongest by far, I mean they look utterly terrifying. Like, type of terrifying that, like, Manchester City should be worried um, about their Champions League tie. I think Eden Hazard and Benzema have struck up just an amazing partnership so far and Hazard's still looking for his first goal since returning but he's had a few assists and Madrid just look sharp defensively sharp offensively they have a good mix of midfielders they just literally shellacked Valencia yesterday like it was an utter drubbing um I'm I'm scared especially after this draw today I think Barcelona have been very sturdy defensively, which is good, but I still feel like we are searching for an offensive identity. And Suarez, you know, just came back from a long-term injury and hasn't really found his feet yet. Griezmann was so close to scoring, except Semedo was like half an inch off sides, and that's not good. Ansu Fati cannot be the player that we rely on. You know, like it's good to have the 18-year-old, whatever, or 17-year-old scoring, but once again, we can't rely on a 17 year old to carry us to a championship so now we are only three points ahead with um having played one more game which means madrid could easily tie us at the top of the table in their next game and i think that is unfortunate because barcelona were in a position such that our games always precede madrid's games so you, the league teams play like every 72 hours or so, and Barcelona started like 24 hours before Madrid. So we had the opportunity to really push Madrid and force them to match us. But unfortunately, we're starting to be put on the back foot a little bit. Um, so we'll see. I, I still think we can pull it out, but I don't think it's a sure thing at all. I have uh, three things to say about La Liga. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't purport to be an expert on La Liga, but uh, here's the three things that I saw uh, in the comeback that I thought were particularly poignant. Um, number one, uh, no beard, long hair, messy, pro. That's the look for you going forward, Leo. Oh, it's uh, so I, good. It's so good. Uh, number two, um, 
<clears throat> the AR fans or the VR fans get rid of them. Uh, they look creepy, kind of in like a like space like two thousand one Space Odyssey kind of like futuristic creepiness. I'm not about it. Get rid of those. Those can be Sp- space fetus. Space <laughs> fetus. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of those. If you want to do the uh, the Zoom wall of fans like we're seeing in the Premier League, uh, by all means, do that. Just don't don't like, do the really creepy like bad CG fan experience. Uh, I think we can uh, we can leave that by the wayside. And uh, number three, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Caleb. I am um, Real Madrid made Valencia look like Arsenal at times, uh, just in the way that they outplayed them. <laughs> uh, their quality uh, on the ball, and I think uh, this restart couldn't have come at a better time for their squad. Uh, the fact that they're able to have players like Asensio come off the bench now and um, put put the ball in the back of the net. The fact that he's been missing for almost 365 days and he comes back and the first thing he does uh, upon re-entering the game is score a goal. Um, I think it's excellent. And Eden Hazard being able, he's looking like himself again. He's looking like the Hazard that we've gotten so accustomed to seeing in the Premier League. And I think that's even more so uh, due to the fact that Fede Valverde is uh, covering his tracks defensively. Uh, meaning that Hazard is able to uh, play a little bit more of a free role with Benzema, who I think he's been able to establish a bit more of a relationship with, even providing an assist for uh, one of Benzema's goals. And Benzema, man, he looks refreshed. That goal was absolutely amazing. If you haven't checked out Benzema's goal from this past weekend, please do. It is worth it. Uh, absolutely unbelievable strike. And Madrid look full of confidence. Uh, like you were saying, Caleb, Pep Guardiola, you know, he should be shitting himself right now because uh, this Madrid team look really, really good. Yeah, I, I believe Benzema became the fifth player to have uh, eight consecutive 20-goal uh, seasons um, after Alfredo Di Stefano and Raul Messi and one more. So another landmark for him. And uh, yeah, I mean, Caleb said it right uh, in our last episode that had it not been for the break, Real Madrid would have gone on to win the league. And then again, they still might. Um, but definitely... Uh, this is the most legitimate title race in the entire world right now between two of the biggest clubs and fiercest rivals. And it's a shame that the two don't actually play again uh, outside of a potential meeting in the Champions League uh, because I guarantee you that if there were a potential class uh, title-deciding Classico, it would probably shatter, um, you know, a global TV record for uh, for viewership. No, well... Uh, Oh, I mean, like, worldwide? Yeah. But I think the Bundesliga... I think if La Liga had swapped places with the Bundesliga in terms of TV rights in the U.S., you'd be absolutely right. But I think there's such a small percentage of soccer fans stateside who are going to get to experience this uh, title chase or this title battle between Barca and Madrid purely because BN still has the rights to La Liga. And I think that's so unfortunate for Barcelona, Madrid, and La Liga as a whole. The fact that like their restart, which is really compelling, and the narrative going into the uh, the last part of their season is uh, equally compelling, but it's just behind this really just dumb broadcasting company uh, <laughs> from Qatar. Yeah. Oh yeah. Vian Vian is so bad. They're so terrible. And not only do they essentially make it hard for people in the U.S. to watch La Liga, which is strange if you're a company who makes money by having people you know watch your channel. Um, but also their production value is just noticeably 
far worse than the Premier League and the Bundesliga. Um, and Serie A, I guess, too, now that Serie A is on ESPN. Um, so they literally shoot themselves in the foot all the time. And I look forward to the day when I can watch La Liga on literally any other network. Um, I would literally take like watching <laughs> watching La Liga on like HGTV with like a screen split with the Property Brothers. Like, hear me out. Hear me out. I would watch La Liga if it was on Quibi. Okay, I would watch <laughs> ten minutes of game at a time. <laughs> I would. Each game would be like nine episodes long. Okay, um, I would. I would honestly do that. Also, just a quick quick fact check, Nathan Benzema has not had. 20 goals eight years in a row but he did become madrid's fifth highest all-time top scorer ah thank you apologies for uh mistweeting mis misremembering a tweet there yeah uh but but still very impressive uh, and definitely he is a player who has kind of reinvented himself after sort of becoming a little peripheral towards the end of ronaldo's tenure at the Bernabeu. um but in general i think I think you guys are all right in that this is and remains the singularly most compelling title race left in world football. Um, and that can only be a good thing. Let's just hope that Barcelona can start playing with a little bit more pep. Uh, yeah. Listen, Bian, I don't want to watch an ad while the game is going on particularly while a player is in the lower right hand corner oh my god oh my god <laughs> and the ad comes and obscures like half the screen <laughs> and i don't get to see who like messi is like probably messi could have scored like the most amazing goal like bill bow against bill bow in like the copa del rey final back in 2015 and will have missed it because you put a manscaping ad <laughs> in the bottom right hand screen <laughs> Nick, that is so accurate. No, no, that's what I mean. But that's what I mean by like the low production value. And like you can tell that they just desperately need money, right? Like I could I could probably buy like a one pixel wide, you know, image of my face on the screen and they would take it for like two bucks. I know that doesn't make sense because an image has to be of my face would have to be more than one pixel. But my point is it's literally terrible. It's literally terrible. It's literally their broadcast is like one of those like fourth division teams that has to have advertisements on like every square inch of their shirt. They are <laughs> that, but a network. And that is not good because you don't want fourth division shit. You want fucking, you know, top division, top quality broadcasting. Yeah, it's so bad. Dude, can you imagine if like halfway through this podcast, like I, Nathan cut out and like we replaced Nathan with like a manscaping ad for like 30 seconds? Or an ad for like some like sports betting company or like some weird like telenovela for like thirty seconds without context, and then like we kept talking after the ad, like nothing happened. Nathan's entire Arsenal rant is just replaced by an advertisement. Right. Yeah, it's bad, and especially considering the emergence of, you know, ESPN Plus, uh, as well as BR Live. There are too many good options for Bian's production to be this bad. And it's definitely in the best interest of La Liga to uh, negotiate elsewhere when this current contract ends next year. 
So we are eagerly, eagerly anticipating uh, the end of that contract. Anyway, gents, I think that is a uh, good way to end our discussion today. Uh, lucky for all of you, Corner Kick fam, this show is ad-free, and you won't have to deal with any manscaping ads or uh, weird telenovela uh, advertisements or commercials uh, during your enjoyment of our podcast. Uh, but we're certainly enjoying soccer being back in our lives in full force again. Um, and I think one other thing to note, gents, is that it was really, really empowering to uh, see every single team in the Premier League take a knee uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement to start each game. And I'm excited to uh, looking forward to seeing those powerful scenes continue going forward. Absolutely. Well, that has been our show today. Thank you for listening. This has been Corner Kick. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. I'm Nick Vinden, and we will see you all next time.